Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. We're living up to our show name today because... I've got a wild story for you. It's not really politics. It's a dash of science, medicine, metaphysics, and the Cold War. I don't want to preview it too much more. Just trust me on this one. Our guest, who may be the coolest person we've had on the show, is Dr. Brandy Scalace. She's worked in an English department, a history department, and for a medical anthropology journal, and five years as a research associate in a medical museum among amputation saws, surgery kits, and smallpox vaccines. So she's had a wide and wild experience. She's the editor-in-chief for BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal, and she's the author of Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, A Monkey's Head, The Pope's Neuroscientist, and The Quest to Transplant the Soul, which the New York Times called delightfully macabre. Dr. Scalache, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you. It's so good to be here. This is a show that is is totally fascinating to me, and we're going to go on quite a journey that you've written a 320-page book about. So we're going to end up at head transplantation. <laughs> but on the way there, why don't you take us back to how this started for you? How did you launch the journey that ended up, and I'm not, this isn't science fiction, this is real. How did you end up launching this journey that lands at head transplantation. I'm happy to tell that story because it's a very peculiar one. And I think there's nothing like a good origin story for a book that you're writing. Mine actually starts with a book I wrote before, which was on death and dying cross-culturally. I got to know a neurosurgeon who worked a lot in trauma units and had much to say about brain death. So one day I received a phone call from him and he asked me to come down to his office. He had something I might find interesting. And when you get a phone call from a neurosurgeon saying he's got something to show you, it's a good idea to follow up. So I head down to Case Western Reserve University campus in Cleveland, go into his office, he shuts the door and he puts a shoebox on the desk between us. He then slides it over to me and just kind of, you know, lets me have a good look at this strange thing. I jokingly said, there's not a brain in here, right? And he said, not exactly, (laughs) which, you know, um, I take the top off and there's a notebook inside and it's really old. It looks like it might be from the fifties, right? And I start flipping through it. And in addition to all kinds of notes and pasted in graphs there's all this mention of like brains and mice and these little rusty colored flecks. And I said, what's that? And he kindly allowed me to, you know, in on the secret that it's probably mouse blood. And I thought, what am I looking at? (laughs) There's this book about mice brains and blood. And he explains to me that this is the doctor who performed the first head transplant. 
1970. Now, there's a lot of words in that sentence that take a minute to kind of get your your head around, which, sorry, <laughs> but yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was my first introduction to Dr. Robert White, who was a neurosurgeon, friends with two popes, and eventually nominated for a Nobel Prize, who took heads off of things and put them on the bodies of other things. Now, Dr. Robert White, as you recount in the book, he is a real scientist. He's what Joe Biden would sort of call a BFD. He made very legitimate, very real contributions to medical science. He pioneered the practice of putting the brain on ice during surgery, which is a procedure that, as I understand it, I'm not a doctor, you are. <laughs> I, but as I understand it, this, this has been a true life-saving innovation. How on earth did this mainstream science scientist get onto this pathway that led him to, I want to transplant a head? <laughs> well, it's a it's a, it makes sense that the notebook was from the 50s because this story goes all the way back to the 50s. It goes back to the very first successful kidney transplant. And that happened at Peter Bent Brigham in Boston with Joseph Murray was the, was the surgeon. And it just so happens that that's where Dr. Robert White was a medical student. So he was there at this time when these very exciting things are happening. And I think all of us are so used to organ transplant, you almost have to re-weird it to appreciate how strange that was. I mean, the doctors were basically taking organs that worked in one person's body and putting them in someone else's. Well, this first one was identical twins because they hadn't uh, developed the anti-rejection, you know, immunosuppressant drugs that we have today. But as soon as they performed this, the race was on. I mean, everybody was looking at transplant thinking, what else can we transplant? What else can come out of a human body and go into someone else's? And Robert White at this moment thought to himself, well, if you could transplant a kidney, maybe you could transplant heart and lungs and liver. And what if somebody needed all the organs? Wouldn't it just be easier to take the whole body and give it to that other person's head? So really his very first uh, inclination in this direction was very, very early on um, because he thought, why stop? You know, there's, if the brain is who you are, which is something he very much thought, then why not do everything in your power to save it? Even if that means giving you a whole new body. What was his motivation? It's hard to, and I see, I'm going to do it too. I, I was about to say, get into someone's head. <laughs> It's very hard to do that, although maybe he felt like it's not that hard. <laughs> what do you think, based on the evidence that you reviewed, and, and you reviewed a ton, I mean, this is a deeply researched piece of work that, that you've done here, and yet all the reviewers, by the way, say that it's absolutely fascinating. It's a page turner. People should check this out on Amazon. People read this piece of nonfiction like it's a piece of fiction. But what do you think his motivation was, because there are suggestions here. You, you alluded to the fact that he was personal friends with two popes. And in addition, he was a devout Catholic. Was this about the same set of motivations that come with other organ transplants? I have a sick person. I have someone who has a malfunctioning kidney. Let's take a healthy kidney, put it in that person, and she will live a longer time, a better quality of life. Is this about something deeper for Dr. White? Is this 
about something religious. There's something really interesting about Dr. White, but I think is probably true of all of us. The book is called Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher because those were two of his nicknames. And that just gives you a sense that this person had two sides of his personality. And I think we all are complex and composite beings. So for Dr. White, on one hand, he was absolutely a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist, and he was interested in saving lives. And for him, that meant doing anything you could do to preserve the life of the brain, the life of the mind. He was a brain surgeon. On the other hand, he was deeply devout Catholic. He had 10 children. He was personal friends with Pope John Paul II. And he helped establish the Vatican Council of Bioethics. This is somebody for whom faith meant everything. And as a matter of fact, he frequently told people he felt God was behind his hands when he was operating, that when he was inside your child's skull, he was being directed by God. So his faith and his science, he did not see those as opposed, but rather working in concert. So the so it's true that he, he wanted to perform transplants in much the same way that you want to save or extend the life of a kidney patient, but there's something very specific going on here. And it changes in the sixties, which is once you start taking organs that are necessary to life, that means you have to have donors who are essentially dead. You can't take the heart out of somebody and let it beat in someone else's body if they're still alive, right? So all of these decisions had to be made about where life ended. And this was fraught, you know, what happens if your heart's still beating, but there's no brain activity? Are you alive or are you dead? For Dr. White, this was easy to answer. He believed the brain and the soul were essentially the same thing, that your soul lived inside your brain, filled that space like perfume. He talks about it that way. That means that for him, if there's no brain activity, you're dead, no matter what your body's doing. But if there's brain activity, then all things should be done to save that brain's activity, even up to giving you a body transplant. I want to separate to some degree, although you're very, very good at looking at the intersections of closely related topics. But I'd like to separate the scientific question for a second of where life resides from the metaphysical question of where the soul resides. Let's, let's tackle the scientific side first. As you know, he's doing a lot of this work in the 60s and the 70s. Obviously, we've made tremendous advancements in medical science since then. Recently, researchers have, on the one hand, uh, scientists at Yale have discovered how to, in the words of the New York Times, reboot dead disembodied pig brains in the lab. So it, it, it sort of demonstrates that it might be possible scientifically to do this function of taking a brain and putting it in another body. On the other hand, there's a lot of research that shows that Dr. White's contention that thinking higher functions of the brain, what we associate with who we are, don't solely reside in the brain. There's research from 2019 that shows that the spinal cord is able to process and control complex 
functions like the way you position your hand in external space. So after all of your work and research on his life and, and this quest for head transplantation, what did you end up concluding about the science of this? Is it truly possible to take a brain out of one person, one person's body, put it into another body and achieve a transplantation of that consciousness into a new body? There's a lot to unpack there, Matt. Yeah, there's, um. <laughs> I, I, with everything having to do with this topic, there's a lot to unpack. See, that was, the, that was my attempt at the skinny version and I ended up not accomplishing that. Go ahead, so, go in any direction um, right, you want. All with right, that. here we go. I, I think, so part of it actually still goes back to this concept of where does life end? So um, I wanna talk a minute about brain death because I think we all sort of assume that there's a universally agreed upon moment of death and there kind of isn't. Um, it's not easy. It's a set of criteria that we try to judge whether someone is brain dead or not. And as we can tell from different court cases that have been fought, not everybody agrees on those definitions. The very first time a legal decision was made was in a Bruce Tucker case. This was very early on this was in the 60s. And a, a man had uh, fallen and hit his head and was declared brain dead. They took his heart and they put it in another patient and the family sued because they said, well, how do you know that he was really dead? So brain death only enters our legal definition at that time. And even though we ultimately, the, the jury decides that because there was a flat line. So it, basically the EEG wasn't uh, showing any activity and there was no response. And there were, there's a number of criteria that you have to sort of boxes you have to check he was considered brain dead and therefore it was not killing him to take his heart, he was already gone. So, so you have these decisions being made, but this was contentious. There were committees working on this. There were people on both sides trying to determine if brain death was equivalent to death, death. And that's, that's very, very hard to understand. So one of the first experiments that Dr. White did was a brain isolation experiment. And to me, this is almost stranger uh, and more interesting than the head transplant. So you be he began with monkeys and I will say he got a lot, of, um, a lot of animal rights activists quite upset with some of his experiments, but he starts with a monkey and he, he wants to take out the brain, but have it not be a dead brain, have it be a living brain. And I think, most of us can kind of imagine a brain free floating in space, right? But how do you get it out and have it not die? Because the brain's really greedy for oxygen. You have to keep it constantly flushed with blood and even seconds can result in damage. So he decided to hook that monkey up to a larger blood donor monkey. And slowly he unplums the circulatory system from the smaller monkey and replums the blood flushed in from the other monkey. And slowly this process means that head is being supported by the blood supply of the other monkey. Then he removes the body. Then he slowly carves away its other features. And I, that's very disturbing when you think about it, taking away parts of a living creature. Yes, it's been, a, you know, it's under anesthesia, but it's living. 
he ends with this naked bulb of brain that's suspended over this apparatus. It's flushed with blood, it's pink, it's still metabolizing, it's hooked up to an EEG and the signals are spiking. There's still brain activity. It has no body, but it's still alive. And that means the brain technically can outlive its body. So. I, I, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean about a lot to unpack here. So, wow. If we're trying so, to get to the question of if it's scientifically possible, I, I see what you mean. That's a, that's a big step on the way there. But yeah, well, but what so, does that so even what mean? He, yeah, so what he basically argued was that this was proof of his contention that the brain was where life was at. His, you know, he basically said, if EEG is what we're counting, if you have EEG, you're not brain dead. Then if you do have EEG, you're brain alive. And if you're brain alive, then you're alive. So this was the argument he was making that if no EEG activity is death, then EEG activity is life. Now, many of his colleagues did not agree. And they said things like, you have no idea what those blips mean. You don't know if it's conscious and thinking, you don't know any of those things. So his next step, this is actually how we end up with a head transplant, because he figured if all the features were still in place, then you could see the eyes blinking and the mouth moving, and you could see it moving its facial features. You could prove that the head had outlived its body. Now, what that means is that you have to understand, at least philosophically, Dr. White was very much a sort of Cartesian dualist, and he really felt that we were just brains walking around, right? That your brain was the main feature, that that's what mattered. And as long as you could keep the brain alive in a head, not in a head, then that was you. And that the body was kind of not as important. Now, as you point out, we don't really feel that way anymore. Um, in fact, we haven't felt that way in a long time because the body, we know there's neurons in your gut and GI system. We know, in fact, almost as many as that are in your brain and that the connection between those things is very important. We know that your hormones and other things like affect who you are as a person. And certainly with the LGBT movement, we know that uh, identity is very important for how, you know, what your body is and how it looks is a big part of how we understand ourselves. So to make the claim that if you're only ahead, that's all that matters, well, that might be a little bit naive, but it was certainly his belief that that was the key thing that mattered. And I can kind of understand how he got that idea. He worked in a trauma unit at Metro Hospital, meaning he saw people who had uh, terrible, terrible wounds, who were paralyzed, whose bodies had been uh, either destroyed by disease or by, you know, um, atrophy after having a, a spinal cord injury. And to him, they were still, they were still themselves. And to say that they weren't would have, he would have considered that ableist. So for him, he said, no, no, it's the head. It's, if you're thinking, that's you. And if I can prove that that head is thinking, then I can show you that it's possible to do a body transplant. I can see why the origin story of your investigation into this whole, this whole saga makes so much sense. Because when you talk to a neuroscientist and you ask, is there a brain in this box? There are two really clear, unambiguous answers, yes or no. And you got, not exactly. And when I ask, is it scientifically possible? I can see that 
in a, in a sense, what you're saying, when I ask, is it scientifically possible to transplant a brain, to transplant a head? The answer really is not a clear yes or no. It is medically possible, as you outline, to physically support a brain without its original body. Right. But that doesn't mean, and this gets into the metaphysical side, right. <laughs> this doesn't mean that it's possible to transplant the person and the experience. Mm -hmm. And it, that goes to a whole, a whole different realm. You could make it scientific. You, you could say, well, it's a complex set of interactions between the brain and nerves elsewhere in the body and the spinal cord in the gut and uh, the, the proteins that, that your body is making and epigenetics and you know, whether you're allergic to something and how that interacts with your mm -hmm. brain. Or you could go to a metaphysical realm and start to talk about the concept of the soul. I, I want to start to cross that barrier mm -hmm. um, and, and get into that nuance between the, the pure science side it's, a, it's an artificial divide between the pure science side <laughs> and the metaphysical soul side. Where we left off was that Dr. Robert White was experimenting in the 50s and 60s with the ability to disconnect a brain from one living animal and try to reconnect it in another body. Where did it go next? Well, because he had some trouble convincing his colleagues that the disembodied brain that he had managed to isolate was in fact thinking, he decided the next best thing to do would be to transfer the brain still inside of its head with all its facial features and all those facial nerves still attached. Because of course, once you sever the spinal cord, anything below that isn't going to work, but the things above it still will. And he actually got this idea from a colleague who was in the Soviet Union, who had been making artificially, uh, <laughs> surgically creating two-headed dogs. And he was basically taking the head of one dog and putting it on the body of another dog. And both of those heads worked essentially. Um, so that was, and White did in fact travel to Moscow to, uh, to investigate this further before he tried the first time on his own. Um, in 1970, he does this. He actually starts a surgery, two monkeys of about the same size. And he goes through the process with a team of surgeons of unplumbing one monkey's head from its body and replumbing it to the circulatory system of the second monkey. And they have to do this via long tubes to start. So you literally have, I describe it in the book, like an old fashioned telephone receiver on a cord from the phone. So you have the head of one monkey slowly carved off of its own body, connected by these tubes to the circulatory system of the other body, which is now itself headless. And then they bring the two together, shorten those tubes, reconnect veins, and sew everything up. And this practice is basically how he creates the first head transplant monkey. And then it's just a question of waiting for it to wake up. So I don't want to leave people in too much suspense about whether the monkey wakes up, but 
I just want to quickly, I'll leave a little bit of suspense because I want to go back to something that we teased at the top of the show, which is that the Cold War enters into this story. Is it this interaction with Moscow that you alluded to? How does the Cold War come into this? Well, in fact, I think you might question how it is that anyone could get research funding to perform something like this. You have to admit, it's a pretty unusual kind of experiment. But, and the Cold War science was also a fight over ideology. So if your science wins, then in a way, it's like saying your nation wins. And this was, this wasn't just sort of pie in the sky. These were actual words that people were saying. I mean, Khrushchev was very adamant about this, that if the science wins, we win. So when you know that in Russia, they're doing experiments with transplants of various strange things. They had released footage of the two-headed dog walking around. They named it Cerberus, by the way. Uh, and uh, they, they, you know, after the three-headed <laughs> hellhound, only had two heads, Cerberus minus one. So, you know, after that footage went live, yes, in a way we were racing, just like there was a space race. There was a, there was an inner space race, a medical race. And, you know, White was competing in a sense. And I feel he certainly felt that that was part of why there was interest and, and funds and things like that available. And he was quite a patriotic guy. So he, he did want, he wanted to do it right. Um, and this, this was part of it. And it was a friendly rivalry. Uh, he actually quite liked uh, Vladimir Demikhov, who was the physiologist who was doing the two-headed dog experiments. But um, in the end, White really surpassed the, his Soviet colleagues. He had greater funding, he had better technology, and he had a better solution for how to perform these transplant surgeries. Which brings us back to the monkey. So did the monkey wake up? I want to paint a picture for you. So Dr. White, uh, balding a little bit on the heavy side, heavy black frame glasses and a pipe. He smoked a pipe throughout his surgeries. He's in a room surrounded by other people. They have worked for hours. They are sweaty and gross. Everyone's tired, they're hungry. And now they're all just waiting, staring at this composite monkey body to see what will happen. The clock's ticking. They're worried, like, will it not wake up at all? Have we failed? Then there's eye movement. It's the eyelids, they just twitch a little bit. Then the nose twitches. The monkey wakes up, it opens its eyes, and it immediately begins to gnash its teeth. This is an unhappy animal. And this is also why Dr. White got a lot of um, negative feedback and negative press for these experiments, because this monkey is now paralyzed from the neck down. It can't move, but it's awake, it's alive. They feed it. Um, it tries to bite Dr. White. It's, you know, it, it tries to, to vocalize, like it's, it's in there. That's a head on a different body and it's in there. And to Dr. White, this was finally definitive proof that this could be scaled up for use in human beings. And this really does get us to the metaphysical part of this. So if people thought that this wasn't weird enough already, <laughs> this is, I think, where it begins to get a little bit weird. Fans of the show WandaVision have recently been introduced, which means millions of people who probably hadn't heard of this before, to the paradox, the thought experiment 
the ship of Theseus. And the idea, this is, this is a really ancient uh, piece of philosophy. And the story goes, if you have a ship that you are maintaining, it could be in a museum, it could be on, on a dock, and it starts to rot. And so you begin to replace the timbers board by board until eventually every original timber has been replaced with a, with a replica. Is it still the ship of Theseus? And it's not clear that there's a right answer to that, but you can see how it relates over to this question of Dr. White is replacing key parts, what he sees as the key part of a living creature's experience, of a human being's experience. So having done that, and now having this unhappy monkey on the operating table, is has he accomplished what he set out to do? Is the monkey's brain in a new body, the original monkey? Is it something new? What does he end up with? That's an excellent question. And of course, the monkey can't really tell you. So um, what you, you do have the original monkey's head and its brain. But now that brain is being flushed by the blood and therefore other elements of body that belong to a different animal. And, you know, we are not just um, our, we aren't just our thoughts. We're also all of the things that affect us. If you have uh, a chronic illness, if you have, you know, certain kinds of hormones that, you know, or your age, everything affects in many ways who you are as a person. And we don't really know. We literally do not know what the long-term effects would be. Possibly the short-term effects you wouldn't notice, maybe. But the longer you are in this other body and this other body is feeding you, the more changes you're likely to see. And the monkey itself only lived for nine days. Um, which is a long time, but at the same time, not long enough for you to have detected any big changes that way. And you, you have to ask yourself, well, is that the same monkey? Am I the same person if, you know, more than, it's almost like 85, 90% of my body is different? Um, and it's a good question. It's certainly a question that comes up and did come up during the whole, um, the dawn of transplant science. You know, if I have someone else's heart, is it now my heart? Or, you know, am I still myself? If a woman is listening to the heart of her child beating in someone else's chest, is that the heart of their child? Or does this heart now belong to the person in, you know, that, that it's in? I mean, th these are questions that we've been asking in other ways for a long time, but are writ large when you are talking about literally um, taking most of your body material and replacing it. So it's an excellent question. And White, <laughs> in his decision to potentially perform this on human beings was setting out to to find out in a somewhat practical way um, what the answer might be. And he, he used, um, he liked to use Stephen Hawking as an example to say, here's somebody who is basically all brain. And, you know, wouldn't we want to give him a new body so that he could continue being this amazing, you know, because the, the body deteriorates, particularly if you are a tetraplegic patient or you have a kind of uh, disease, a neuromuscular disease, eventually the body will fail you. And his point was, you know, if you're already paralyzed, then having a head transplant isn't necessarily going to change that for you, but it could give you this extension, this life extension, this new kind of life support system to keep you alive. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting query. Absolutely fascinating. And I, 
I'm curious about what you decided in your own mind from your own perspective, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, you're someone who has sought out a real diversity of experience. You don't simply look at things. I think this is one of the reasons that the book works is that you don't just look at things through the eyes of a scientist. You have a PhD. Um, You also are someone who has thought about construction of the English language and history. Um, And, you know, you, you've, you've worked at a museum. You think about things from a variety of perspectives. So I'm interested in how you think about it. Now I'll give you my reaction to all of this as sort of a jumping off point. It seems to me that the question of whether you can take someone's brain, their soul with it and, and put it from, take it from one body to another is sort of asking the wrong question in a way because who we are is constantly evolving throughout our lives based on how our memories come and go and are formed, our physical experience. You, you, you mentioned earlier our sense of identity that goes with our sense of our body. There's a ton of relatively recent work in epigenetics showing that we continue to sort of evolve the way our bodies react to the environment and the world. There's a lot of scholarship about the fact that women who have had children react to the introduction of genetics from the father of their child because they've gestated their child. And some of that DNA makes its way into their system. Um, And so there are these constant set of complex interactions going on between our, our minds, our brains, and our external environment And who you are at one point in your life isn't necessarily the same person you are 20 years later. So that's sort of my jumping off point. What did you conclude? Well, one of the ways that I like to look at this issue is that we do have a mix in this book, not only because Dr. White has sort of two selves, but because we do. We have two multiple reactions to the different things that we encounter. I don't think there are singular answers because I'm not sure we're singular selves. I do think that one really interesting point that gets raised comes not from Dr. White, but from the patient who volunteered to be his first human head transplant. His name was Craig Vitovitz. Craig was a tetraplegic patient. He had been in a diving accident when he was a teen and it had shattered part of his spine. But at the same time, he was very active. He was married, he had children, he owned his own business, he had traveled everywhere, he consulted for NASA. This was somebody who had a full life. But due to his problems with his uh, paralysis, some of his organs had begun to shut down and he was still quite a young man. The thing is, it's hard to get an organ transplant no matter who you are, there's long waiting lists. And if you're somebody who is tetraplegic, they don't always consider you a good candidate. And he felt as though that was someone else making decisions about whether or not his life was worth living. And he felt that he was a fully functioning human being. Why should he not get a transplant? So he volunteered for White's body transplant. Basically, he said he was willing to have his head be put on a body that would support him for a longer life. Many people thought he was, (laughs) well, 
Many people thought this was a terrible idea. And they even called him Frankenstein's monster. And that really, really made him furious because to him, he was just a fully functioning human being, but the world saw someone who was uh, paralyzed and thought somehow that wasn't as full of a life. So you can see there's this additional complexity to are we our brains or are we our bodies? Because what do we mean by body? Do we mean when we say that that is a, a person who is you know embodied, are we only thinking of able-bodied people? Are we thinking of other people? Are we thinking about the, you know, the health access issues that affect other human beings who might be struggling to get care or organ transplants, or, I mean, this came up with COVID-19 and the vaccines because of uh, legislation in California that essentially um, privileged age over ability. So I didn't really come down to a point where I felt I could say, white was right or white was wrong about where the self resides. I do think we're far more complicated than just being our brains. At the same time, I understood very uh, deeply what Craig Vitavitz was saying, that if this is my only ticket to extending my life, why should I be denied? So um, it's tricky and it's, it's strange. And uh, I will say he doesn't actually get a chance to transplant Craig Vitovitz's head to a different body or vice versa. Um, so we don't have answers. And White really felt that someday someone would follow in his footsteps and that we would have answers because it would have been done. You raise a really interesting point that's embedded right in the title of your book that this is going to sound like Bill Clinton a little bit here with his, well, it depends on what the meaning of is is, but it depends on what the meaning of ourselves is in a sense, because as you say, there can be multiple aspects to who you are and you exemplify it in Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher and relate the fact that Dr. White himself, as you know, was a very serious Nobel nominated scientist who made significant contributions to thousands of people's lives, but also walked around on Halloween with a medical bag labeled Dr. Frankenstein <laughs> and consulted on the 2008 movie X-Files I Want to Believe. He himself had sort of a dual self. So it seems like that's that piece of this is embedded in the whole story you tell. It absolutely is because I don't think, I think it's often the case that we want there to be heroes and anti-heroes and we don't want them to be the same person. But that's not how real life works. There's many things about Dr. White that are amazing, laudatory, brilliant. He, you were talking early about perfusion, which um, is the therapeutic hypothermia techniques that he developed to cool down the brain so it wasn't as greedy for oxygen, it prevents brain damage. And in fact, it was used on my father when he was having open heart surgery and I'm pretty glad that we have it. That's what he was nominated for, for a Nobel. At the same time, there were things that he did that were extremely questionable and sometimes because of the time period and sometimes because he was Dr. White. <laughs> um, you know, there's a, he had good reason to have angry 
uh, animal rights activists on his tail because he provoked them as well. He stirred the pot. He was somebody who enjoyed the spotlight and took advantage of it and was an extraordinary rhetorician. I mean, he I watched him eviscerate people in debates. He was definitely somebody who believed he was absolutely right and that God was on his side. So many people accused him of playing God, but he felt he was playing God for God. So it's pretty hard to shake someone's confidence like that. And so there are times when you read the book and you think, oh, no, doctor, no, no, bad. And then there's times when he seems amazing and he's saving children's lives and he's inventing new surgeries. So I wanted to capture that because life is complicated and we are complicated. And if you're going to write a book about the brain, it, it, you better make room for complexity because that's who we are. After spending all this time with this incredibly complex figure and these incredibly nuanced questions that go to the root of who we are and, and what the universe is all about, did you leave thinking differently? about the world, your own experience. What was, what was your big takeaway? I would say that the biggest thing that I learned from researching this book and that I hope other people take away with them is that sometimes technology gets out in front of our ethical understanding of consequence. And so just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should do it. And I will say that um, Dr. White was at one point given an opportunity to perform a head transplant on a human. And he turned it down because he would have been doing it on prisoners on death row in the Soviet Union. And he refused on ethical grounds. So even Dr. White had lines he was unwilling to cross but I think it's really important for us to remember, those of us who are not scientists ourselves, not medical doctors ourselves, we must take an interest in the way science proceeds. We have to respect science, but also realize that if we abdicate the responsibility of making decisions about the shoulds, someone else will make those decisions for us. So for me, I believe that the ethical responsibilities of science really were driven home by this particular text. And I felt that that's where all of us need to focus our energies because in science fiction, you can play around, right? You can, you can try out these things, you can X-file it up, you can Frankenstein it up. But in real life, we want those ethical considerations to come first. What are you working on next? Can you give us a little bit of a sneak preview? Well, as per usual, I'm continually investigating areas of science that most people don't know about. I'm really, really interested in genetics, in stem cell therapy, and also in IVF technology, um, in vitro fertilization, which has come so far in the last few years. So I'm probably uh, gonna be focusing my energies in that direction next, but I'm also in this at the same time still working at the journal, which we have a big social justice focus and particularly um, in accessibility and disability studies. So, you know, for me, these questions of ethics and access and whose lives matter and who gets to decide, because 
all lives should matter. Um, you know, it's it's really unfortunate when you see that dis disabled people, uh, black people, minorities, immigrants are often denied care or given substandard care, or they're not believed by doctors because of systemic racism. So, you know, one of the things that we've really focused on, including the Black Lives Matter movement and LGBTQ issues, is really taking a hard look at who benefits from health in this country and abroad and trying to work towards justice of access. So that's something that's always um, in my mind and, and in a lot of my work. The book is Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher. Dr. Brandy Scalace, thank you so much for taking us through this absolutely fascinating story. And I hope people will check out the book. <laughs>